0: You're listening to The 66, a podcast in which we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser and I've got Andrew Kingsley with me. And uh, it is our quest to cover every book of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. We just finished a series on the book of Philippians that lasted about eight episodes. So we want to change our stride now and do a book, one book in one episode. Do some catch-up work here. And a good way to do that is to turn to the minor prophets, these little books at the end of the Old Testament. They're really easy to survey, and a lot of people find them interesting because they know very little about them. The book that we're going to study today is the book of Joel, the second in the catalog of the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets, but they're not all written at the same time or for the same purpose or even to the same audience. Uh, There's a couple of the minor prophets that aren't even addressed to Jews. They're written to, uh, the book of Obadiah is written to the Edomites. The book of Nahum is addressed to the citizens of Nineveh. So they're really interesting, and you can't just look at one and say, oh, that's in the minor prophets, it means fill in the blank. You have to get a little background on each one of them to really understand the contents. And so with Joel, I want to do a little background work. And, uh, you know, usually what you do... And getting the background work of one of the prophets, just read the first verse. So let's uh, read verse one, and uh, that'll probably settle all the questions we have regarding the background. Oh yeah, the word, the word of the Lord. Why don't you read it for us? All right, the word of the Lord
1: that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel.
0: Now see that answers everything. You know, yeah. Pethuel. We all know Pethuel. Right. Pethuel. Yeah. Uh, he
1: wrote first Pethuel, right? Yeah,
0: first and second Pethuel. Oh yeah. Actually, that tells us absolutely nothing. Pethuel is, is not anybody who is known to us. Joel is not anybody who is known to us. So we have to go into the contents of the book and the internal evidence is what this is called to see if we can deduce a time period and that might help us understand some of the prophecies. Now, the one thing that you look at when you're reading the Old Testament is Who are the enemies of the people of God at this time? And what's interesting is you don't see any references to Assyria or Babylon who were the main enemies in the 7th and 8th centuries uh, and on of the people of God. So uh, this indicates maybe an earlier date for the book of Joel. The enemies mentioned are Tyre, Sidon, Philistia. That's chapter 3, verse 4. The Sabians are chapter three verse eight. So that tells us something. Also, another very interesting and unique thing that you find in the book of Joel, no kings mention. Turn to another minor prophet or major prophet. And it usually begins saying, This was written during the days of Uzziah. This was written during the days of Josiah. It will name a king, and then we can go to our timeline of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah and Determine a pretty good date for the book, but you don't have that in the book of Joel. And that tells you something about the book of Joel. In addition to the absence of kings, you have this constant uh, refrain of commands or instructions directed towards elders and priests. For example, chapter 1, verse 2, "...hear this, you elders, very unusual during the monarchy age of the Jews." So, um, this indicates that either the book was written during a time of a king with a limited rule, or it was written during the time when there were no kings, like after the exile. Uh, also a very interesting thing. Uh, now, in 2 Kings eleven twenty one, 21, we read about this boy king named Joash, who was mm-hmm. early. Uh, he was age seven when he came to the throne. And there was another boy king of the, of the nation of Judah named Josiah, He was eight when he came to the throne. But we eliminate Josiah because uh, we're not talking about the Babylonians here in this book. And a Mm -hmm. book written during the reign of Josiah would definitely mention the Babylonians because they were the main enemy. Instead, you've got Tyre, Sidon, Philistia. So we're thinking Joash here, maybe when he was a young boy and the nation wasn't ruled by him, but was ruled by uh, elders and priests, Also, no references to idolatry, which meshes well with Joash's reign, because as a boy, when he was a boy, there were religious reforms that rid the land of idolatry. So we're doing a little guesswork here, but we're thinking this book was written during the days of Joash, 830 B.C., uh, and probably had Judah, the southern kingdom, in its sights. Now, what is the book about? The book is about repentance. Repentance is the pivotal theme of the book. And it outlines very nicely around that as the central theme. Here's what we're going to look at. You know how you ask somebody, Andrew, you say, uh, I got good news and I got bad news. What do you want first? Bad news. You always want the bad news first. And... um, you know, sometimes somebody will say, well, the bad news is there, there, there is no good news. And that's when you know you're in real trouble. But yeah. here we have both good news and bad news. And all of us want the bad news first. And that's how it works out here. We're going to get bad news. And then we're going to have a call to repentance. And then there's going to be good news. So the call to repentance lies between the bad news, and the good news, and the structure Mm -hmm. itself gives you an application. I know we usually do the application at the end, but here, you know, the structure is an application all its own because you have repentance that lies between the bad news and the good news, determining basically whether you're going to stay in the bad news or be able to move on to the good news. Yeah. So... So let's go to the bad news first and see what it is. And the bad news is basically that they have been hit by a locust plague. We'll talk more about what locusts were and how devastating these plagues were in the next part of the podcast. But for for now, let's just do a little reading in chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So a natural calamity has happened and has destroyed. There's a lot of of, um, descriptions of locusts in this book. In fact, when I teach it, sometimes I say the key word of this book is locust, mm-hmm. because that triggers in your mind, you know, the locust plague. And that's what uh, jo- uh, Joel is pointing out and saying, you know, here is evidence that you have been judged by God. Another good description of these locusts comes to us in chapter 2, verse 4. Listen to it. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, they run. As with the tumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Some people read that and think Joel is talking about a literal army of people. Mm-hmm. But these are v- descriptions of locusts. And, yeah. you know, I, I, my favorite is in verse four, where their appearance is like horses. Because if you zoom in to the face of a locust, it looks kind of like a horse's head. To yeah. me, it does. It's elongated, mm-hmm. it, it has eyes on the side. You know, it just to me, I really see that. And all the other, you know, where they charge in battle and they leap on the walls and they enter through the windows like a thief and the earthquakes and, you know, uh, we'll read some descriptions later, but this idea of the sun and the moon being dark and that's not just a figure, a figure of speech. Mm-hmm. These locusts are so many that they eclipse the sun during the daytime yeah. sometimes Mm -hmm. So, uh, Joel is very gifted as a poet, as a descriptive writer. So, that's the bad news. They've been utterly destroyed, devastated by a locust plague, and Joel links that to the judgment of God. Now, the next part of the reading is the call to repentance. And that's summarized in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, although it goes... Down all the way to verse 17 in chapter 2, but here's what verses 12 and 13 say. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. That's the call to repentance that lies between the bad news, and the good news. And if they heed it, they will have good news. If they ignore it, they'll stay in the bad news. So here's the good news. The rest of the book, chapter 2, verse 18 and following. Uh, In verse 25, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You said... You know when we were talking about how we were gonna outline the book. That's a reversal of of what we read in chapter one. Yeah. You know, chapter one, what it was, verse um, four. Yeah. Where you know they're eating everything up, and uh, then in chapter two, verse twenty five, you have a total reversal of that, a restoration of it, mm-hmm. and then you have this great prophecy that looks beyond their time into another time, into the messianic age. At the end of chapter 2, I begin reading in verse 28. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Because verse 28 says, This shall come to pass afterwards. Mm -hmm. Even after the restoration, God promises to bring to the people who repent as a result of this natural disaster afterwards. Or as one translation puts it, in the latter days. We'll come back to that again. Um, But finally, the book ends with a promise of judgment on the enemies of Judah, which is part of the good news and so chapter 3 verse 19 says Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations I will avenge their blood blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion so that wraps up our reading and uh You have the bad news, the call to repentance, and the good news. Got anything to add to it?
1: I just think the outline is really, I just think it's cool. I like how it's, you know, like you were saying at the beginning, it's its own application. just the outline of the book. There's the bad, we'll repent from it, and things will get better. And that's exactly what we see just in the outline. Uh, To me, that's just very interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean we we just kind of threw that together as we were talking about the book uh, mm-hmm. right right before we started recording, and I've ta- I've taught this book many times and uh, have never noticed that it it kind of splits up that way. And it, it, see, you get exclusive material here on the sixty six. Yeah, that's you right. Can't, you can't get this anywhere else.
1: And I like what you said to start with that repentance is pivotal to the book. You know, it's yeah. a major theme. It literally is the pivot point. Of the book, if you you know, if you look at it this way, with bad news, repentance, good news, Mm -hmm. it's where the whole thing shifts. It's where all the pivots. I'm sure we can talk a lot about that.
0: Back, ready to think a little bit about this Old Testament minor prophet, the Book of Joel. I want to start with locusts because in America we're not, you know, accustomed to locusts, and I've always thought of them just, you know, kind of like grasshoppers. Mm -hmm. But I've never seen a locust plague, although I have heard and I've seen evidence of locust plagues devastating parts of of the Midwest and uh, the Plain States. Uh, but it's not a real problem for us for whatever reason. Maybe our climate or whatever keeps keeps the, the locust hordes down. But in other parts of the world, locusts are some of the most feared creatures. And the reason for it is they can devastate a crop in just a short period of time. You can get a little information about the nature of the locust just by looking at the Hebrew words that are used to describe them in the Old Testament. There are four basic words in Hebrew to describe them, and here they are with their definitions. The first one, the one used in Joel, is Arba. And Arba means to be many. That's the literal meaning of it. So first, from that word, you get that they travel in multitudes. And then you have Gazam, which means the Nawar, The Nawar. I have a hard time saying that word. Nawar. <laughs> Nawar. Nar.
1: Yeah, that's a hard word to say.
0: Nau, the one, one who, who gnaws. Knows, yeah. The one who gnaws. And then Yeleg, the liquor, and Kassil, devourer. All very difficult words to say. Lots of ours. But those uh, those three, Gazam Yeleg, Kassil, they all mean basically something that eats a lot. So you have a creature that eats, devours and travels in multitudes. Um, I have a couple of descriptions of actual locust plagues that I wanted to share with you. (coughs) This one from William Houghton in Smith's Dictionary of the Bible. Uh, He saw a locust plague for himself, and he described it in terms of clouds which ravaged crops much the same way as the heaviest hail. He said they are said to fill the whole atmosphere in an innumerable quantity. Their flight is slow and uniform, and their noise resembles that of rain. They darken the sky and weaken the sun. Remember Joel talked about how the the sun and the moon are darkened. In a moment, they completely cover everything, and in a matter of two days, all crops and vegetation are nearly completely devoured. In a short time they disappear, yet the fields are covered with their dead bodies. So it's just, you know, part of the problem with them is they eat all of this and they devastate everything and then die. So it just seems inexplicable, you know, why they would come and why they would vanish as quickly as they came. Here's another uh, poem attributed to the Malagasy people of Madagascar circa 1950. They evidently had witnessed uh, locust plagues before as well, and and I thought this was very descriptive. What is a locust? Its head, a grain of corn, its neck, the hinge of a knife, its horns, a bit of thread, its chest is smooth and burnished, its body is like a knife handle, its hawk a saw, its spittle, ink, its underwings, clothing for the dead. On the ground, it is laying eggs, In flight, it is like the clouds. Approaching the ground, it is rain glittering in the sun. Lighting on a plant, it becomes a pair of scissors. Walking, it becomes a razor. Desolation walks with it. That's very accurate. And some things that that I related to... Have you ever picked up a grasshopper? And uh, I used to use them for fishing bait when I was fishing for catfish. And I would get a big old giant... Texas grasshopper, mm-hmm. put it on a fish hook, drop it down about three inches from the bottom of the pond. in Texas, we call them tanks, and uh, I'd catch you know five six pound catfish every time like that. Mm. But handling them like that, they would sometimes um, you know leave a black discharge on your hand. Mm. And I was just reading this, it's spittle ink. Compares the spittle to ink. I mean, I I've yeah. seen that, you know. So this is kind of like a grasshopper, and the t- smooth chest. I've seen that, you know. Uh, that we talked about the horse-looking head from Joel. Yeah. Um, you know, I can these these descri- descriptions all you know really mesh well with my experience. Now, you know, I've never seen a. a a swarm of locusts like we've been reading about.
1: Yeah. yeah. But
0: we were reading here... Let me let me get this part. And okay. We were reading here that they, they do occur in two phases, a solitary phase and a gregarious phase. hmm And, you know, what we've probably seen in the States is the solitary phase. But in the gregarious phase, they can get it swarms. So one swarm was reported in the Red Sea area in 1889, estimated to be 2,000 square miles in size. So, um, you know that that that's a lot of information about locusts. I think maybe more than some people were wanting. But
1: well, I'll give you a little bit more. Okay, let's let's <laughs> I might do just this now. Uh, when you were talking about never actually seen, I just typed in to Google here on my phone locust swarm just to see what case I wanted to look at it while you were talking about it, just to kind of have something you know to think. Have
0: something to do while I'm talking. No,
1: to 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 look and see if there's you know just to get an idea for myself and i found this report on abc news in august madagascar you mentioned this before yeah that's started. where that poem came from yeah they yeah. were uh, well in 2014 in august madagascar was hit with the with this huge locust plague is what they're calling it and they've got a they've got their uh, reporters saying it's a, it's like the 10 plagues of egypt Uh it is so it started in two thousand twelve, and in two thousand and twelve Madagascar's government proclaimed a national disaster Hmm. uh, according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. Their plan is to stay in this emergency plan until two thousand sixteen and it's gonna cost them more than forty one million dollars. So What are they doing?
0: Poisoning the locusts? Or?
1: It says that they've just got a... So far, they have succeeded in controlling the pests in over 4,600 square miles of agricultural land. And you can see uh, there's a picture. And if you're listening, you can just go type in Madagascar locust swarm. Yeah. And it'll come up and show you... Very and,
0: cloud-like.
1: Yeah, there's a list of videos you can watch about what's going on over in Madagascar right now wow and it just looks like clouds moving by but you know they're bugs you or know bits they're of bits locusts. of paper
0: just blowing but when you get the further away you get from it, it it looks like a cloud
1: yeah so it's just the amount if you're listening I would encourage you definitely to go and check it out and just see for yourself so you can get an idea of what it would have been like Mm-hmm. to have been around for this. Because like, I hear grasshoppers. And I'm thinking, relax people, yeah. it's just grasshoppers. Yeah. <laughs> At least it's not like fire from heaven coming down. But this is, yeah, I mean, there's a country that has been in a state of emergency for two years and will continue to be for another two years because of this ongoing problem over there.
0: Wow. I, did, I didn't know there was an actual plague you know, harming people right now. So that that's yeah, really interesting. Alright, let's let's move on to something different. Uh the prophecy at the end of chapter two is really important and uh we need to talk about that for a few minutes.
1: Yeah. The this book is Kaufman, I was reading Kaufman's commentary. He says that this book is one of the most important in the Bible. And that's because of its connections to The New Testament. Certainly one of those is in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, where Peter on the day of Pentecost, I'm sure this is a scene that's familiar to everybody. In Acts 2, Peter gets up to make his statement and deliver his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and right there in verse 17, all the way to verse 21, he quotes. Joel 2:28 to 32 which is what we just read for you earlier in the uh, read section and so this is the point where you know we said uh, back in you know back in Joel he says and it will be or afterwards it will be and or whatever it is in the latter days it will be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. That's what's happening here on the day of Pentecost. Right. The spirit and, is, and I is think here it's now. so
0: important, so important because of a lot of uh, groups out there that teach otherwise. To note that. You know this this is where they're speaking in tongues and and are accused of being drunk mm-hmm. and uh Peter says you know we're we're not drunk, it's only the third hour of the day, verse sixteen, but this the tongue speaking the manifestations of the spirit, yeah, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be God declares, so he's saying this." is the beginning of the last days. Yeah. And that is so important, and it hinges with uh, Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, and some other references to the last days in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got a religious group that call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter... Well, I got it mixed up. Yeah. The Latter-day Saints. Yeah. And the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints. Uh, The Mormons. They called themselves the Latter-day Saints as opposed to all the other saints who aren't Latter-day Saints, you know, mm-hmm. is the way they think. And they, they will teach you that the uh, last days began in 1830 with Joseph Smith. Well, if that's the case, Peter didn't know it. Yeah. And if that's the case, the writer of the book of Hebrews didn't know it. Because they're saying this is the last days. Mm-hmm. And what that basically means is the Christian age... Is the last day. There won't be another dispensation. There's not going to be another covenant on earth. This is it. We're in the last age. And yeah, it's lasted two thousand years so far. But that's not the point. He's not saying these are just going to be a few last days. But we're beginning the last age, the last dispensation, the latter days. Yeah. All right. And well, I
1: I think it's important it's definitely important to note that this is the Christian age is what we're is what we're getting at here. And there are aspects of this that you see coming to fruition in the new covenant that weren't necessarily present in the old covenant. For example, you see in in Acts seventeen or in Acts two, I'm in verse seventeen in Acts, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And so you kind of have this idea of you got old, young, men, women, slave, and free. All of them are equally getting the spirit of God. God is pouring out his spirit on all of them. And that is almost verbatim said in Galatians chapter 3, Paul's first letter that he writes in Galatians 3, in verse 27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus." And so, that is to say, everybody is just as baptized as everybody else. Everybody is just as saved as everybody else. Uh, none of those distinctions matter in in the church, in the in the body of Christ. And that's certainly, I guess, fore, foretold here in Joel. So an idea that he brings up, and there's another connection to the New Testament. Do you have anything to... Say on that before I move on to the next one?
0: Uh, no.
1: Okay. There's another one. I guess I just said everything there is to be said. Yes. You covered it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, verse 13 of Romans chapter 10. You might notice, if you're able to get your Bible out and read it, you might notice that there are quotation marks around what Paul writes there. He writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Well, let's even back it up. Look what happens in verse 11 of Romans 10. Mm -hmm. For the Scripture scripture says... says, So it's referring
0: to an Old Testament passage. Mm -hmm.
1: Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved that is a direct quote from Joel 232
0: and this is one passage that is taken out of context so much and the emphasis when it's taken out of context the emphasis is on the word cause. and it's you know it's put this way all you have to do is say a sinner's prayer or all you have to do is pray out to God to be saved Uh, baptism is not essential for salvation, neither is this or that or that and you know, all you have to do is just think that Jesus is the Son of God and cry out to God in prayer and you're automatically saved at that moment. And Romans chapter ten verse thirteen is used maybe as much as any other passage as a proof text for that. But when you read it in context and you link it with Joel, that's not the point. It's not a passage on the plan of salvation. It's a passage on the universality of the gospel, that it's for yeah. everyone. And that's why there's all this business of, every verse 11, everyone who put, believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction, no Jew, no Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I, I don't see how anybody misses that. It's very plain that this is about the universality of the gospel.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think it's it calling on the name of the Lord doesn't just mean shouting the name of the lord
0: yeah that that's also true, yeah,
1: it means something a lot deeper than that. We're talking about the person that does that not only calls on the name of the Lord but that actually does the things uh that he has asked us. To do. You know, in Matthew seven, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Yeah. So calling on the name of the Lord, and Paul kind of continues on that line of thought in Romans ten, you know, he says, How can they call on him call on him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in him of who they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? Being, or calling on the name of the Lord is a lot more than just being in trouble or something, saying, Lord, I believe. Yeah. Because, you know, we know from James that the demons believe. If all you have to do is believe and call the name, then Satan and all the demons, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're saved according, because they... <laughs> like know, Legion
0: in Mark 5. Um, yeah. Have you come to torment me? Do not, you know, cast me out before my hour. Yeah. Um, You know, I also think about the fact that in Romans 6, Paul has already made it plain that baptism is one of the things that you must do Mm -hmm. in order to be saved, verses 3 and 4. And then also I think about, you know, Ananias' visit to Saul of Tarsus in Acts 22, verse 16. Why do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Yeah. So I'm not saying that's all there is to calling on the name of the Lord. I'm just saying it's a part of it. Because Ananias, through inspiration, said, you know, you be baptized calling on the name of the Lord. That was the way he described the, the baptism Saul was to, to have, the baptism into the name of Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, I think that idea of calling has a lot more to do. It's a lot deeper than just shouting a name. It involves doing the will of the, the one that you're calling on, I guess.
0: Yeah. And all that comes from Joel, and, it, and it's easy. It's easy to to get one passage in your head, Romans ten thirteen, and just throw it up in somebody's face over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Every time they try to talk to you about what the whole Bible says about salvation, but if you really want to know what that one verse means, you've got to open it up into the context of Romans chapter ten, into the context of the entire Epistle of Romans, into the context of the entire New Testament into the context of God's sal- salvific is that a word saving plan? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. Into the context of the whole Bible, which includes Joel, and Joel was talking to a group of Jews, uh, the nation of God's people, the physical nation who thought that they were the only chosen one once forevermore. Yeah. And he's saying, "Hey, there's good news coming after this. There will be a day when it won't be about this nation or that nation, but all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's where we are now. Yeah. All right, another tough question that Joel raises. This whole book is based on a natural calamity. And the prophet is pointing to the natural calamity. And he's saying, You have sinned. Repent. Now, this raises all kinds of very difficult questions regarding how we respond to natural calamities as people of faith. Do we look at them in every case as God's judgment? And or or do we not? And if we don't, then what are we to make of Joel doing that with the locust plague? This and you know, is this the only locust plague? No. There's one going on right now, in Madagascar. So yeah. is that God's judgment upon Madagascar? You know, are we looking at all locust plagues the same? And who is Joel to pick this particular one out? You know, it raises some very difficult questions about how we respond to these natural calamities. I remember in 2005, after Hurricane Katrina, that there were preachers who got on the radio or television or the Internet and were saying, this is God's judgment on New Orleans because it's such a sinful city and, you know, God, God is doing this Well, there were a lot of innocent people that were hurt and displaced because of Hurricane Katrina. And at the same time, you know, over in Las Vegas, nothing was happening. Yeah. You know, um, in uh, other places in the world, you know, Amsterdam, no hurricane. There's a lot of sinful cities in the world, a lot of them, that are doing just fine, physically speaking. Why New Orleans? So this, you know, and then and then you get into other things that aren't necessarily natural calamities, like nine eleven. Yeah, you know, there were people that came out and said nine eleven. We are being punished for our sins. Yeah, punished by Muslim terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, is this like the Babylonians coming? I guess the same question could be asked in war. You know, when we turn to uh, the book of. Uh, Jeremiah and read about the Babylonians destroying God's people? Do we make a parallel? Can we connect those dots every time? So what are we to make of it? What do you think?
1: Well I definitely think there were other disasters going on other natural disasters going on in Old Testament times and we don't have a book of prophecy about every one of those natural disasters as being judgment from God. I think what makes the difference here is you have a prophet of God standing up with the word of God and saying, Hey, God told me to tell you that that locust plague was because of your sin. Mm-hmm. And now you got a chance to repent. You know, I think if we had a guy, you know, you said there were preachers on TV and, and this and that and the other, but, you know, if our, if Katrina, if Hurricane Katrina was a, judgment on our nation somehow or just on New Orleans then I, th- I think the, the difference maker is you know where was the the prophet I guess in that instance to say hey this is the judgment that has come upon you and I know there were some preachers uh, saying that but you know there are preachers that say a lot of things so yeah. and you know I get uh, Peter talks about. Is Peter talks about discerning between the spirits, and is that Peter uh, or
0: uh, the the gift of discerning the somebody. spirits is in uh, First Corinthians. He talks First about, Corinthians twelve. I think um, it was one of the miracle gifts. Yeah, I think I'm, miraculous gifts. I think Let me give a little more nuanced approach to this. I, I agree with you. Joel is inspired, so he, you know, he should know, and uh, he's a true prophet.
1: Mm-hmm. It was John, not Peter. Oh, okay. Test oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Test, test the God. spirits, yeah. yeah.
0: First John four one. Yeah. Um. I here. It isn't there a sense in which every death, every natural disaster, is attributable to sin? Yeah. Is that not the case? Were there in the Garden of Eden did they worry about tornadoes, hurricanes, and hailstorms? And locust plagues. That's a good point. They did not, but whenever uh, sin came in, death spread to all because of all sin. Romans five twelve.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you know Genesis three fifteen or three seventeen. Adam is said is told, "Cursed is the ground because of you." And in Romans eight, you read about how creation groans as it anticipates the redemption of our bodies. And the release of this uh, curse that the world is under. So the world is cursed because of sin. So there is a sense in which we could point at any death, any natural calamity, and say this happened because of sin. But one is not above the other. And there's no city that is innocent. You know, that That's the arrogance and the conceit behind pointing at Hurricane Katrina and saying, that's judgment on New Orleans. Some guy over in Denver, Colorado's, you know, saying, well, New Orleans is being judged. Oh, is Denver the Christian city? Yeah. Or some guys over in Birmingham, Alabama, you know, talking about how New Orleans is destroyed for its sin. Does that mean that, you know, Birmingham is a perfect city? Yeah. No. None of these cities are Christian cities, and one is not any better than the other. Not to mention, there were innocents who were destroyed along with the wicked in these places. Mm-hmm. So there is a sense in which all of these natural calamities are attributable to sin, but you can't say that one calamity is you know, more judgment than another. Mm-hmm. And you can't say that those that avoid these particular calamities like hurricanes, tornadoes, etc., uh the, the are innocent what yeah. what what is happening here is that god is using a calamity to teach people about sin and repentance mm-hmm. that that's what's happening here yeah and we can use anyone like that to sh- to say hey you know there's obviously you know and we'll we'll make some applications later but obviously the world is out of our control
1: yeah
0: there is a higher power at work here, a destructive power, but also a loving and merciful power. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can you can do those kinds of things, but to say that you know one city's more wicked than another is just it's just not not the right way to look at these things. Not the way we're meant to.
1: Yeah, I think we would have a hard time saying to somebody that natural disaster happened; it was God's judgment on you, without having a direct. Line from God himself telling us that. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You know, that's what I meant by, you know, where's the prophet? You know, here it's obvious. Joel is a proven prophet, makes a statement. And so today, you know, if you think something was a judgment on somebody, well, you know, unless you've had a direct line from God himself, then we're really, I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, in that kind of scenario, I think that's what it, cuz you're not going to find a bible verse that says you know the hurricane that took place in Leeds in 2000 and what was it 5 2005 was a judgment on Leeds that's not in the bible
0: yeah yeah that's right and uh, although there will be people that that say they can find that yeah
1: yeah
0: lessons that we can learn from this Old Testament book. Well, there are several, so I'm just going to kind of, sometimes we just have one or two. This time I've got, you know, seven or eight here. Mm -hmm. We'll go through them rapid fire. We might discuss some of them. I'll leave that up to Andrew. If something fires you up, you chime in. And a lot of verses connect them. A lot of them come from chapter 2, verse 13. Here's the first one. The first one is that merely external religion is dangerous. In chapter 2, verse 13, Joel says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. You know, they had a practice of tearing their clothes to show their remorse or to show their penitence. And Joel was tired of seeing that. You know, he had probably been seeing a lot of this religious behavior without anything to back it up. And what the Lord really wants is internal reform. He wants you to tear your hearts. Don't just tear your garments.
1: Yeah, that's actually the one thing that I was thinking about to start with that I would want to discuss, and I don't want yeah. to discuss it too long because I want to get to the rest of your stuff. No,
0: that's that's fine.
1: But that is definitely, I mean, that hits home to us now for sure. Tear your hearts and not your garments. That that is a, I love that verse. I yeah. love it because I think it really gets down to the, the, the essence of what this whole thing is about from the beginning that a lot of people miss. And then when you get to Jesus, obviously he tells them in his, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount about how it's about your heart and not about just what you're doing. It's about what's going on in your heart. So, yeah, they say, you say you're sorry for your sin and you're, you know, you're showing it, you're tearing your clothes. And I'm thinking of it, in terms of today, you know, we say we're sorry for our sin. You have somebody that goes forward crying on a, you know, after a service or comes to you privately crying or whatever. You know, they make all of the right they make all of the right, I guess uh, I don't know, moves. actions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they go through the right motions, moves. yeah, to make you think they are sorry for what they've done and that they are repenting. And then, and I'm not saying it's perfect, you know, you pray for forgiveness and you'll, you'll mess up again at some point, but you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking oh, yeah, about the kind yeah. of people that will, that will do that. And then that night when they go home, they're back into whatever it was that they were praying about at church. And, you know, obviously their hearts have not been torn up by what they're doing. Now yeah. they might be torn up that, you know, they have the consequences of what they've done. But they're not necessarily torn up at the fact that they have sinned against God, period.
0: Right. And yeah. that, that's my lesson number two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also coming from chapter 2, verse 13, true repentance is a change of heart. Yeah. That's what exactly. it is. The, the word repent literally means a changed mind or a second mind, another mind. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's internal it's not, you know, an action. It's not something you can fake. You can, mm-hmm. you can fool, of course, you can fool everybody around you that's watching you for a while. Yeah. But, you know, the real repentance happens inside. And it, it's the transforming part of conversion and also of, you know, the Christian life. Because whenever you become a child of God, repentance becomes an everyday thing. You're mm-hmm. constantly, you know, getting back on track. And it keeps you sanctified, keeps you staying with it the whole time.
1: Yeah, I think the difference there is you've got an attitude of repentance. You're working towards repentance. Yeah, there'll be times when you slip up and, and you make a mistake. But on the other end of it, you've got somebody that's their attitude, their heart is not changed, and they are just trying their hardest to make themselves not do something. Yeah, and I think those are different things. You know, if you're struggling with, uh, I'm trying to think of something that would be comp- comparable to what I'm thinking about. But if you're struggling with, uh, maybe it's alcohol or a drug or something, there's a difference between changing your attitude about that thing and just thinking, oh, well, I can't do this anymore and still go to heaven. Mm-hmm. I better keep myself from doing that. You know, there's, it's mm-hmm. a total different mindset.
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay, and another one on repentance. Number three, genuine repentance gives God the opportunity to send blessings. This relates to the structure of the book, the bad news, the call to repentance, the good news. Mm-hmm. If you answer the call to repentance, that gives God the opportunity to give you the good news, to be the, to the blessings. Uh, You'll notice in verse 18 of chapter 2, after the call to repentance, the repentance is assumed. And it says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So the repentance had to come first, and then the Lord had pity again. But I also find it interesting the way this is discussed. Again, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Turn to the Lord your God for, here's an explanatory note, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster now notice yeah. it doesn't it's not in the future tense he will you know if you do this the lord will change and he will become gracious and merciful and slow to anger etc no he is he always is that's this is his eternal nature yeah he's he's doing this now it's just that his righteous holy nature it's holding him back from blessing you with that loving, pit of, uh, uh, merciful nature. Yeah. And so, um, you know, do this, and this gives him the opportunity. It's not about, you know, we're not challenging the omnipotence of God. Correct. We're just saying we're, you know, holding his righteous nature in balance with his goodness and his mercy. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, number four. Judgment on a wicked nation is ine- inevitable, um, because we've got judgment on Judah, judgment on Tyre and Sidon, judgment on Philistia, judgment on um, Edom, judgment on Egypt. Nobody is exempt here, and uh, we've talked a little bit in the last section about you know these natural disasters and whether or not that's judgment on the nations. I do believe in the providence of God. And I do believe that uh, God sets up kingdoms and he tears them down. And I believe that Uh uh, proverb Proverbs 14.34, that righteousness exalts a nation. So uh, I think you can take a little of that away from the book of Joel as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, number five. God delights to include everyone in his great gift of salvation. This is what we talked about a lot as we were trying to straighten out that idea that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord... Will be saved. Yeah, and then finally, uh, God disciplines those He loves. And that's Proverbs three eleven and twelve too. Mm -hmm. Just like a father disciplines his child that he loves, God disciplines His people. And uh, you know, the book of Joel is about the people of God being hit by a locust plague, and the prophet saying, "You know, this is God punishing you for your sins." Mm -hmm. The reason that He does that is because the best thing for us is not to allow us to live in our sin because eventually that's going to bring the wrath of god on us the best thing for us is the righteousness of god and if it takes a locust plague or it takes discipline or pain or suffering or loss in order for us to to gain a relationship with god that's the best thing for us yeah so so that's uh that's number 6 and that's what i've got did i did i leave anything out there I'm sure there are a lot of other lessons that come out of there. I don't know though. There are. I think you. It's a really a practical book, and yeah, uh, yeah. it's ignored. I, I, you know, I bet a lot of our listeners have never, you know, unless they've done a read through the Bible in a year plan, have never read the the Book of Joel. And it's so short. It's just three chapters. Yeah. What do we say? Seventy three verses. Yeah, we didn't bring that up. It, oh, we good. we did all that research, and then we didn't. Uh, we noticed uh, during the break, one of the breaks that. Chapter 2, verse 16 is like the middle verse. And we were talking about how this call of repentance sits right between the bad news and the good news. And it really it really does. That's right smack in the middle of that that good news, I mean that call to repentance. Um, so just a little over 70, 70 I think 73 verses is mm-hmm. what we counted up. Very short. So I'm taking it, you know, we always do a wrap-up at the end of a book. This time it only took one episode. Yeah would you think about the book of Joel?
1: I like it. I think yeah. it is very not that other books are not important, <clears throat> but obviously from some of the things that we've talked about, Joel is a very important prophet in terms of what's going to happen in the New Testament.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it and and it uses the phrase day of the Lord in a lot of different ways. Uh, it talks about the day of the Lord, of course, in a in a wrathful way. But when you get to that prophecy that you just mentioned, chapter 2, 28 and following, mm-hmm. the day of the Lord is something positive. It's a day of salvation. Yeah. And that's a little unusual for minor prophets. I mean, there are other... I, we The only other minor prophet we've covered so far is Habakkuk. And yeah. that's another one that reads a lot like a New Testament book. Um, Joel is a little more conventional because there's a lot of judgment upon you and judgment of being. Well, yeah. Habakkuk has that too, but um, you have that prophecy that you know relates to Acts two. And I think it's James Bales that called Acts chapter two the hub of the Bible. Like it's the middle of the wheel. The uh-huh. whole thing hinges on it. And that preaching in Acts two came from Joel too. Yeah. Another thing you can do is link the chapter twos together. Uh you have Isaiah two. Mm. I should have prepared for this. Micah two, Joel two, and yeah. it might be Micah four actually. <laughs> mm. I've messed this up. I know it's Isaiah two and Joel two and Acts two. All yeah. all have to do with the same thing. And then I think it's Micah chapter four. Mm. But um you know, it is a very important book, and I'm glad we were able to cover it. And I'm glad that you joined us on this uh, podcast. We've had some listeners have been with us the whole time. We love to get feedback and love to get reviews on iTunes. We didn't check uh, today to see if we had any new ones. But uh, we, we last time I checked, we just had a couple. Yeah. If you'll leave us a review on iTunes, then uh, that gets us up in the rankings and gets more attention and attracts more listeners to the podcast. If you want to send us some feedback, uh, you can send an email to akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. Our, pod, our uh, Twitter handle is The 66 Podcast, and uh, you can check us out online at the66.net. 66 is a number. Uh, next week, we'll get into new territory. we haven't decided decide what we're going to do. Well, we'll probably take next week off. Uh, It's Christmas, so we won't be around. But in a couple of weeks, we'll get into something new. And uh, until next time, take care.